Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. The Texas border is back in the news, but what's actually happening down there? Is it all a political ploy or will we actually get solutions from lawmakers? Plus, working from home is great, but we're seeing the negative impacts of it on the city. And our grocery bills are too dang high. Joining me to break down these stories and more are Pulitzer Prize finalist Evan Mintz and local newspaper reporter Melissa Inahe. It's Friday, February 2nd, 2024. I'm Rahil Ramzanli, and here's what Houston's talking about. Melissa, welcome into CityCast Houston. I'm so excited to have you on here. Friday, we are happy. Evan, hi, how are you guys doing? I'm doing great. It's a good Friday. I am so excited to be here. It's Black History Month. We are celebrating many things, uh, not only the culture, but just the friendships, the history. It's going to be a great time. So we're here. Let's do it. So yesterday we published our guide to February in the city of Houston. I want to know, Melissa, what is your one thing you have to do in the month? In the month of February? Yeah, I definitely have to go and um, eat some good Cajun food, like a good soup of gumbo. um, And I believe it's still oyster season. And there's so many oyster restaurants that I've seen popping up in the city that it's like, okay, we've given up on crawfish and we're we're looking towards oyster these days. And, And because of the way inflation works, we're like, we'll just go with oysters then. Yeah, we'll go with a cheaper alternative. How about mm-hmm. you, Evan? What's your one thing to do this month? Oh, February's time to garden. Now is when you get in your tomatoes, your peppers, anything you're going to be growing in Houston, you want to get in early. February's the time to do it. So I'm excited. There you go. I'm going to start doing that too. I need to get it going because I want a nice crop here later on in the year. Okay, let's get to our biggest story. Evan, let's start with you. Um, a lot going on at the border. So I want to toss it to you because You got to fill me in and kind of explain what's happening. So I got to say from the very beginning, everything going on is very dumb and very political because people have been crossing the Texas-Mexico border forever, and they usually do it when labor markets are really tight and you want to hire a bunch of people, which is exactly what's happening right now. But Texas doesn't want to make that easy. They've been putting down a whole lot of a barbed wire on the border. And a lot of the focus of this has been on Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, a town of about 30,000 residents, mostly Mexican-American, on the border. Residents aren't happy about this. But the folks who have been there, the Texas agents, have been blocking Border Patrol agents from going into the park and doing their jobs, which is to apprehend people, process them, follow the law, and if they make asylum claims, get them a hearing to determine whether those are legit or not. So the Supreme Court threw out a lower court decision last month that said that the state could do this, but they didn't actually rule on the case. So it's kind of hazy, like, can the feds come in and cut the wire? Can't they? Nobody's really come to like a strict determination on that. Meanwhile, folks are pointing back to a case from 2010 out of Arizona, where the Supreme Court came down and smacked down a state law that really empowered the state to try to punish people, deport people for uh, working with undocumented folks. 
But rather than say, look at this from a legal perspective and figure out like, well, you know, how do we enforce the law? How do we make sure that we have the capacity to process people? How do we change the law if we want to change it? Instead, you've got Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, and all sorts of folks going on Fox News, going and talking to pundits and freaking out about it, saying that we're under an evasion. You know, we're being invaded by folks at the border. I got to tell you, unless like the Mexican army is down there with tanks, nobody's invading us. I'm going to quote Alex Noradsev from the Cato Institute, who says coming to Houston to work isn't an invasion. And that's what folks are doing. But that hasn't stopped uh, Greg Abbott from crying invasion and hasn't stopped Dan Patrick from going on TV and offering language that might as well be taken from the manifesto of the El Paso Walmart shooter or the Tree of Life synagogue shooter saying that folks are coming here to commit crimes in the streets. You know, even the National Review, one of their writers is calling Dan Patrick a lunatic because of all of this. And as Scott Braddock at the Texas Take have pointed out, you've got nut jobs across the country listening to this stuff, recording themselves on TikTok, freaking out and saying they're going to come down to Texas and start shooting migrants. You know, we need to turn down the temperature. And the Biden administration has basically said, we recognize everyone's worried about this, that too many people are coming to the border without proper documentation. The way you get at it is by changing the law. So they've offered to Republicans to say, hey, we'll work with you on writing a law that will empower the president to say, shut down the border, not let anyone cross if too many folks cross without documentation at any given point. And a lot of Republicans in the Senate have said, you know, this sounds like a pretty good deal because every other time Democrats wanted to work on immigration, they said, we'll work with you, but we need a DREAM Act. We need something that will make a bigger door to get in, even as we make a wall at the border higher. But now Democrats are saying, listen, just give us something on this. We actually want to solve this problem because the politics of it are too bad and it makes us look bad. And then you've got a bunch of Republicans going on TV or yelling about it, saying, well, we don't want to make Democrats look good. We don't want to solve the problem. We want to kick this down to Donald Trump and help him win. Meanwhile, anyone who's been in Texas long enough knows that folks crossing the border haven't been, you know, dirtying the blood of our country. They've been our lifeblood. When the oil bust happened in the 80s in Houston, we were saved. We didn't become some rust belt town because you had thousands, if not millions of migrants coming over from Africa, coming over from South Asia, and coming over from Central and South America and Mexico, particularly because the 1986 immigration bill, which really hardened the border for the first time, uh, prevented folks from going back and forth for work. So they had to pick what side they're going to be on. They chose the Texas side and they moved to Houston. And so right now you've got dying rural towns across the country, across Texas, that really could use a second life by welcoming migrants. Heck, you've got a whole bunch of old towns, Cleveland, St. Louis, Chicago, that are below their peak population that really could use a boost from folks coming in. But it takes support, it takes programs, and it takes an orderly sense of how this goes about. And that means passing a law. So we're going to see if Republicans in Texas really want what they say they want and agree to work with the Biden administration on passing a law, or if they just want to go on Fox News and freak out about it. Man, uh, he hit so many great, great points here. We are in election year, election season with the primaries, and it's just the perfect time to put all these hard hitting words on these cable news networks when they can be dangerous rhetoric. I mean, I think about what Evan said and and when southern states along the border were uh, shipping migrants to other states whenever they were coming in mass migration, um, shipping them to Chicago, shipping them to New York, uh, to Florida. 
I remember that the governor there was like, no, we're, we're bringing them back to another state. And then a, was it a massive storm happened in Florida? And they're like, oh, actually we need you guys. And people were doing under the table contracts to help rebuild the state that they were forcing them out of. So the irony here is just, it's just, it's per, it's the perfect storm. I, I hate to use that word again for a time like this. And, and like you said, Evan, the thing that we know is that migration flows at the US-Mexico border have fell more than 50% in early January, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. Um, but the thing is, stricter enforcement of immigration law, it really does tend to reduce migration flows, but it's it's not something that happened yesterday or last night. This is something since the beginning of time. And and to, to find a solution is, like you said, it's going to require a, a consensus between both parties. It's going to have to take away the politics of it and see the human dignity in these people who are, are crossing with their families. Mm-hmm. No, that's the thing with the political climate now. Solutions don't matter anymore, it seems like. It is more about the headlines. It's more about engagement farming on X, on Fox News, whatever it may be. You just want to get your base all riled up. Maybe it's donations. I don't know. But if there is a solution there, can we just solve this? Wouldn't that just make sense? Like this is something that America does really well, better than any other country. We take folks from around the world, they come here and they become American. You know, we don't let ourselves be overly entangled with the past. We try to define ourselves by the ideals of the future. And the moment we stop doing that, that's when we really stop being America. And so it freaks me out sometimes to see politicians try to act like some other country, act like we're not America. No, like let folks come here. We're really good at this. Like this is our skill. Right, right. And some of the latest numbers that, again, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security released regarding the number of legal permanent residents, over 200,000 are in Harris County. And you know how long they've been waiting? They've been here providing taxes, starting businesses, and some average more than 10 years just to wait to become that process. So they're, it's it's embedded in our city. We're a melting pot. We see these people and they're not coming and taking our pockets. They're literally building the city on our ba- on their backs. Mm-hmm. You know, when Trump first got elected in 2016, his whole anti-immigration stuff was based around immigrants coming and taking our jobs. But the economy's different now. You know, we have a labor shortage. You could really uh, use some folks coming in to do some work. So instead, all the rhetoric is not about taking our jobs. It's, oh, they're immigrants. So they're going to come kill you and take your homes and take your stuff. And it's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, all you got to do is drive around Houston and be like, are these guys working? Are these guys forming businesses? Like, no, that's how this goes. Right, right. We'll definitely keep tabs on this story. And I know there's going to be a lot of updates coming and there's going to be a lot of drama from this. And we'll see if a solution is actually there. And we'll see if we can get something solved here at the border. Melissa, let's go to your biggest story of the week. Oh, my biggest story of the week is um, something I've noticed as I'm working from home today. It's just that Houston office leases are kind of losing in 2024. Um, We're seeing this in other big metropolitan cities across the country where big developers, you know, big banks, companies, organizations, they're like, man, since the pandemic, we are trying to force people back into the office. And um, it's still an ongoing conversation. These developers are thinking about other ways to make, you know, revenue with less people in. They're thinking about becoming, you know, 
apartment complexes in that large building that looks literally like an office. So while that work for home trend, we're, we're just seeing the data from that as the pandemic numbers have rolled in. Um, we're seeing that suburban offices are, are kind of gaining and they're kind of gaining traction. So people like the, especially in Houston, a lesser commute time to go to the office. Can you imagine that? So those those office buildings that you you know you see in your local shopping centers, like mm, who works there? And it's like people do actually. <laughs> yeah, I have seen a lot more office spaces in the suburbs, right? Like I'm out in the suburbs, and I see that like there's more shared office spaces, there's more fun places to work at, right? Outside of your retail stores, so that is a trend that is definitely rising. And when you think about it, if you don't need to be in the office, and there's pros and cons. I am all about working from home now. It made no sense to drive an hour just to get to the office. You lose an hour of work. You are then stressed out. Like It made no sense that we would drive that much just to get to the office. If you didn't need to be there, there's some jobs you have to be in the office. I get it. These numbers just speak to common sense, in my opinion. Like, yes, of course, there's less offices leasing right now because people don't want to drive 45 minutes to get to work. Now, I remember back in the 90s when Houston was the see-through city, we'd overbuilt in the 80s, you know, all these empty office buildings. And I think that if you look downtown, they're still putting up new skyscrapers because folks want those like high-end class A spots. So maybe you'll be able to fill those with, you know, multinational corporations and law firms and whatever. But I wonder about like those weird mid-rise towers that are along every freeway. Like, who's going there? What are in those? Because it seems like it's really easy now to do a lot of your businesses from home, do stuff from home. There's only so many businesses where you really need to be in person to do it. Like, how many doctor's offices can you have? So what's going to happen to all of that? Yeah, by the way, as of January 15th, uh, the weekly back to work barometer reports 58.7 of Houston office workers were working from the office compared to 71.8% in the first quarter of last year, 52% in 2022, and then 34% in 2021. So just in a year, we've had that big of a drop. So it just shows that, look, we want to work from home, guys. We want to be able to just wake up, get our stuff done, not be stressed out in traffic. You get better, more productive workers. I got to say, speak for yourself. <laughs> I like to work at work and live at home because I know if I work at home, I'll never stop working. That is true. That That is one of the cons of working from home. But if you put some limits and you set some boundaries, Evan, it can be done. Trust me. <laughs> Okay, my biggest story is an update on what's happening with Food Not Bombs. And this story comes from cron.com. Uh, we know that Food Not Bombs has been getting citations for feeding the unhoused population in downtown in front of the library. Now, the back and forth with the city has culminated in a lawsuit now where Food Not Bombs has sued the city of Houston, alleging that enforcement of the city's anti-feeding ordinance is a violation of the volunteers' First Amendment rights. The suit is modeled after a similar suit from the Food Not Bombs group in Fort Lauderdale, where the 11th Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals found in 2021 that Fort Lauderdale's FNB, which is Food Not Bombs, food sharing efforts are expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. And one of the volunteers here from the local Food Not Bombs has said that, look, us sharing the food is actually to spread our organization's political message of being anti-war, pro-human rights, and pro-mutual aid. This is just another layer, Evan, on what's been happening, the back and forth with the city and Food Not Bombs. How do you see this one playing out? 
you know, I'm I disagree with that 11th Circuit decision. It seems like the, the laws, at least as they're written, are content neutral and regulate behavior, you know, not uh, not speech. But I, I understand the city's perspective on this, you know, that if you're going to go out and feed people, large groups of people, you want to have safety regulations on it. You want to get permission from the city before using property. You know, imagine if everyone could just go out and use the sidewalks for their own private activities. It would be chaos. There's a reason why you have a permitting system. You know, I've really been sympathetic uh, with Food Not Bombs from the beginning. But after a while, it's just like, file the permit, man. Just like, get your permit and go do the work. You know, is this about trying to pick a fight with the city or is this about trying to feed people? Yeah, I agree. I when I first heard this story, I was kind of like, what's going on? Why would they do this? To, you know, people, you know, organization just trying to feed the homeless outside the library. And then time after time, it's like, let's stick to the mission here. Like, are you going to die on this hill that is causing all these lawsuits and going against the city? It's just like if your mission is to feed the people, you know, they're like like Evan was saying, there's there's limitations because on and there's also organization on that, because like he said, imagine someone was just pulling up shop on the side of the library. But you know what they were doing? They were selling not Girl Scout cookies, but their own homemade cookies. You got to think of it, you know, in both sides of the spectrum. And I I, I hope that it ends in a peaceful re resolution for both parties, because let's not waste any taxpayer money on this anymore. Let's get these people to feed whoever needs it out in the streets. You know, there's so many nonprofit organizations that are doing this and I applaud their efforts, you know. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. I hope it comes to a peaceful resolution. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Evan, let's get to your most overlooked story. Well, I think the most overlooked story is the money coming down from the Houston-Galveston Area Council for safer streets in Montrose. They announced that they're going to be funding plans to expand sidewalks and build safer infrastructure around the schools in Montrose, the Wharton Dual Language Academy, the Gregory Lincoln Education Center, and Carnegie Vanguard. Now, I used to live over there on West Clay, and there really should be this walkable corridor on West Gray from Shepherd all the way to Midtown, linking up to the walkable developments on Bagby. But that just doesn't exist. So I'm really excited to see this first step being taken. There's also going to be funding for bike lanes on Waugh and also a walkable, bikeable infrastructure on West Alabama, all within the West Loop. It's this huge stretch. If they get it built right, it can be massively transformative. 
But I want to point out that this money is there because the HGAC has a $450 million surplus in federal dollars that they need to spend. It shouldn't take some fluke in federal funding for Houston to get safe streets for school kids. And also, a lot of this money is going to other projects out in the suburbs. Funding for the Gulf Coast Transit District and the Fort Bend Public Transportation. You know, why do Fort Bend and Brazoria and Galveston have their own transit systems that they can get funding for instead of just being part of Metro. And meanwhile, the HGAC still isn't playing ball after Houston passed Prop B to demand proportional representation. It's nice when we get nice things from the HGAC, but we really should have more of a vote there. Hey, Evan, quickly, what is the latest on Prop B? Oh, well, uh, there had been negotiations going on between HGAC representatives and the city of Houston. It seemed like we were making progress and then something happened and it just totally broke down and HGAC said, we're not going to negotiate anymore. We're going to stick to the status quo. So now we've either got to uh, get back to the negotiating table or Houston has to say, well, we're going to withdraw. Wow. We'll see what happens with that one. Melissa, what's your most overlooked story? Uh, it kind of backpacked what Evan was saying about, you know, safer streets and, and transportation, and all these projects. But um, who wants to com- commute anyways when the I-45 expansion project begins in downtown Houston this year? And guys, construction with the project could go out as far as, drum roll please, 2038. Gotta love it. Um, I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I don't want to imagine, but we all have to imagine and realize this is our reality. Um, with that that project that that is happening in downtown Houston. So they're kicking off construction. It's going to run from the northern stretch of Bellway 8 through downtown Houston. And the mission or the aim, I'm sorry, is going to revamp the downtown road network while adding lanes to the city's more major like north-south highway corridor. Woo, that's what we need. We need more lanes. We need more concrete. We need more cement. Yeah. Houston, clutch city. The C stands for cement, concrete, <laughs> freeways. I can't envision Houston without construction, honestly. It's part of our life now. Like, wouldn't it be weird if we just drove around and there was no construction? <laughs> that would be some kind of uh, utopia land. It's yeah. part of our culture, you know, yeah, construction. It, it's who we are. There's this big uh, statue uh, in the middle of downtown that says, as we build our city, let us hope we are building forever. I'm like, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> We're building forever. <laughs> All I envision is Evan driving down, seeing the construction and going, look, those are jobs, baby. Those are mm-hmm. jobs right there. Hey, it's good for the city. <laughs> yes, but there's drama to this situation. While we think of like the ongoing construction in the city of Houston, let's talk about the communities that are affected by this project. Yeah. Um, these residents who are in the neighborhoods that have been assigned for these projects, the community text dot, uh, Texas Department of Transportation have spoken to these residents and and actually, they said they've spoken to these residents, but community um, advocates and organizers said, we've knocked on doors and they're encountering language barriers. They do not know what's going on. So imagine you're coming, you know, you're coming home from working long hours, you know, and you come home and it's like, and it's like literally behind your house. So I think while this is tipping off this year, we're going to stay tuned to, you know, how is this affecting the, the those residents who, you know, don't speak English. English is not their first language and they're being affected by, the, you know, the construction, the noise pollution, all the other adverse effects, because not everyone is pro this project and not everyone is for this project. All right. My most overlooked story of the week. Uh, Things are getting a little expensive here, but take this with a grain of salt because I do want to go through some of these numbers. Houston boasts the second highest average weekly grocery bill in the U.S. at $302 
per household. Now, this comes from the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey, and the Austin American Statesman also helped with this as well. Now, these numbers, okay, let's go through some of the items that they listed and the average price, and you tell me if this is correct or not. The first one that stands out is 2.2 pounds of cheese comes in at $12. Thoughts on that one? Who's buying that much cheese? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who? Oh, my gosh. Cheese. We love cheese in Texas. It's a Tex-Mex thing. But that's a lot of cheese, y'all. What? That's too much cheese. I buy fancy cheeses all the time that cost that much for like way less cheese. I got to <laughs> say, that's a lot of cheese. But where are you getting these good deals on cheese? So everything is based on one kilogram, okay? So rice is $3.91 for about 2.2 pounds. Bread is at $2.98, which, you know, that's about right. I'm paying about that much for bread. I'm actually, my wife pays like $4.50 for bread because she has to get that really good bread now. What happened to the good old days of just eating the H-E-B brand? But you know what? That's what happens now. I guess you get bougie. Um, Potatoes, $2.69. Water comes in at $1.39. And then here's one that makes sense. Chicken breast, about two pounds is $11. And that one's like, okay, that's pretty fair. So I just wanted to bring this up to you guys that things are getting expensive. And we came in at number two for highest average groceries behind Miami, by the way, Miami was number one. Yeah, I know that it makes no sense. But here we are. Houston is expensive now. I'm curious why that is, because I would expect, you know, we've got a port, we're near a lot of farmland, that like we should have easy access to groceries. It should be cheaper here. I want to know what's going on. Yeah, same here. I wonder if we're being affected by anything else going on in the world, maybe, you know, maybe a war in Russia, things going on. Who knows? But I mean, the great points. It's just that with, with the state of the economy, with the state of everything going, you look at Texas and it, this is supposed to be the comfortable cost of living well, compared to who you talk to. But it, it, it is staggering to see that, you know, everything is going up except, you know, my happiness <laughs> when I go to the grocery <laughs> store. Well, let's get to our happiness. Let's get to our moment of joy. Melissa, why don't you start us off? What made you happy this week? Oh, my moment of joy, man. I survived my 30-something birthday uh, day drinking thanks to the millennial party hours. That's what I call it. Um, Millennial party hours means you are out by 4 p.m. and you're like you're done by 8 and um, and you're in bed by 11, which happened to me. And I just want to say thanks to my friends and shout out to this event and uh, all those who came and supported my birthday. Uh, we survived. I'd like to say I survived because this beloved Chinatown staple. Tan Tan, I love you. Don't ever leave me. You don't ever leave you, Sin. Please, um, we will support you forever. I love that. How about you, Evan? What was your moment of joy? My moment of joy is that today is my wife's birthday. So happy birthday, Melissa, my wife, my partner, my soulmate, mother of my children. I love you. Oh, that's sweet. Where are you going to take her? What are you getting for a present? Can you say? Uh, Our daughter has planned a surprise party that none of us know about, wink, wink. Uh, And uh, my wife's friends will be coming over this weekend, hopefully avoiding the rain and having some mimosas. Oh, my gosh. Heart is full. Happy birthday to another Melissa. Yes, that's amazing. Love that. Love that. My moment of joy after years of searching and going to countless open houses and visiting houses and going here and looking at that. 
the Ramzanli family finally moved into a new house. And that's why I wasn't on the podcast last week. I was busy with the move, but everything is finally done. And let me tell you, there is nothing more exhausting than moving. So we were in our starter home for almost 10 years. That's where you know we brought home both of our daughters and we had so many memories there. And it was all just broken down in like two and a half hours because these movers are so efficient. But then getting everything to the new house, unpacking, it's still been, you know, going on, but it's almost done. And I've never been this tired in my life. I'm telling you, like I've played in weekend basketball tournaments, flag football tournaments where I've literally over the weekend have run like 15 to 20 miles. Okay. And I'm more tired just unpacking boxes than I am from that. So uh, you know, we're grateful, we're excited, and I'm just so happy that we finally found the perfect home for us in our future. Love that. All right. That was a lot of fun. Melissa, Evan, thank you so much for joining me and talking about all these stories. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. Talk with you all next time. That was Melissa Inahe and Evan Mintz. All the stories are linked in our show notes. That will do it for this week here on CityCast Houston. Our executive producer is Dina Kespa. Our producers are Carlyon Jones and Elizabeth Kama. Our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis, and the host is me, Rico Ramzanali. Our music is by the band All the Kimonos. We'll be back on Monday with a look at why some Houstonians have been waiting a month for recycling to be picked up. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new. I've been on cruises before and I'd much rather be surrounded by a bunch of like rambunctious kids and Disney adults than like aggressively drunk 20 and 30 year olds.